Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, my name is Ben, if you don't know me, and uh, I get to share the word with you today and again next week. Um, if you've been around Eastridge the last few weeks, you know that we're in this uh, series where we're looking at some of the parables of Jesus. And what we mean by parables are the stories that Jesus told that had a purpose or a point or, or were meant to sort of get inside our ordinary life and change us a little bit. And so uh, today we're going to look at some of his parables, a, a very famous passage of, of his teachings and his stories in uh, Luke chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 15. And, uh, you know, this is in the center, pretty much exactly in the center of the book of Luke. And I think the, the biblical authors are really smart. Luke was a really smart guy, very good communicator. Uh, that's why he was hired when he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He was hired as a writer to write these things. Uh, he had a patron because he was a very good, very smart writer. And I think he puts this in the middle of his book on purpose. I think it's in the middle because this is sort of a foundational backbone truth of our faith. Jesus is going to tell three parables about what it means to be lost, what lostness means. And I was thinking about that this week. What does it mean to be lost? And I started thinking about, if you know me, you know that I uh, really love to hike and backpack. Um, and I thought about some of the times when I've been out in the mountains and gotten a little bit lost and what that felt like. Uh, I, I thought about uh, just over a year ago, I got to hike the Camino de Santiago in Spain, which is a 500-mile journey across Spain. And there were many times on that uh, journey where I experienced the feeling of lostness. Um, that you, On the Camino, you don't really take a map with you. I know if that sounds sketchy, it kind of is. And uh, you would instead follow these, these yellow arrows that were either, sometimes they were like official signs that people had put up, but uh, sometimes they were just spray painted on the side of a tree or on the side of the trail, just a yellow arrow saying, go this way, right? This is the way to Santiago. And so you would follow these and it was sort of part of the experience to, to find the arrows and to trust that they were leading you in the right direction. And there were many times that um, I would get up at like 5 a.m. and I'd just roll out of bed, put on my hiking boots and immediately start going because I wanted to get a head start before the other people started hiking. And I would, uh, I would be hiking in the dark for like a, an hour and a half or more. And, uh, and so I would find my, use my flashlight to try to find these yellow arrows. And there were many times as the sun came up when I was like, you know, I haven't seen one of those yellow arrows in a while. And I haven't seen any other hikers in a while. I wonder if I'm lost. And, and I don't know if you've ever had that, ex that experience, but your heart starts to beat really fast. You're like, oh, what am I going to do? Do I backtrack? Do I keep going in this direction? I'm not really sure. Maybe I should keep going, but maybe, maybe I missed a turn back there. But if I did miss a turn, am I going to be able to find it? I don't know. Do I go back to the very beginning and start all over? And over and over, this would happen, and, and inevitably, somebody would come up, either another hiker or more often, just like one of the people who lived in the villages along the trail, and come up and they would just say, uh, are you lost? Or like, do you need help? And I'd go, yes, I don't know where I am. Am I on the right track? And sometimes they'd say, yeah, just keep going down this path. And sometimes they'd say, well, where are you trying to get to? And I'd, oh, I'm, go I'm going to Santiago. And they're like, oh, like everybody else. So then they'd say, well, you want to go this way and that way, and then like head, head, head on the trail that way. That'll get you back on track. And, you know, I, I think that oftentimes when we think about what it means to be lost, we can sort of um, forget that lostness is something that happens to us sort of along the way. Many of us think of lost, and, and especially if we've been around the church most of our lives, we might think of like a lost soul or like uh, uh, lostness as an eternal destiny, right? Lost people are people who are headed for an eternal destiny separated from God or, or uh, people who go to hell are lost people. And that, that may be part of it, but when Jesus begins to talk about lostness, you know, he doesn't talk about a destination. You know, pe people uh, aren't lost because of where they end up. They end up in the wrong place because they are lost, right? So when Jesus talks about lostness, it's not just for people who, who are uh, not following Jesus or for people who don't believe in him. It's not, he's not talking about an, an, an eternal destiny, when Jesus talks about lostness, he talks about our, he's talking about our experience in life. The experience of Christians and non-Christians, believers, non-believers. He's talking about the fact that sometimes we can get off course. Sometimes we can wake up and look around and go, I have no idea where I am or how I got here. I don't know if you've ever experienced that in life. I certainly have. So when Jesus talks about lostness, understand that he's talking to all of us, Christians, non-Christians, He's talking about that experience in life where you suddenly realize this trail I'm on is not leading me where I want to go, and I don't know how to get back on track. 
And so in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is talking. It says this in verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and, sister, and, and sinners, not sisters, maybe they were sisters, I don't know. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So, so a few different groups of people gathering around Jesus to hear him. The sinners... In other words, those who had been defined and stigmatized by their public sin. People looked at them and they said, I know what that person is like. They are sinner. Or, or the people that you sort of look at and go, they seem a little unsavory. Maybe I shouldn't really hang out with them. Is it safe? Is it spiritually and morally safe? What's it going to do to my reputation? These kind of people who are stigmatized, identified by their sin. And then the tax collectors, these were people, right, Jewish people who had capitulated to the Roman occupiers and now were, were defrauding their own people in favor of the occupier. In other words, they were people who had compromised their faith for personal gain and status in the world. People who had compromised their faith for personal gain and status in the world. So you got kind of two classes of people. People who are just living a life in sin, just totally identified with their sin and totally stigmatized by their sin. And you got these other people who maybe at one time believed but have compromised in their faith, wandered away in order to have some sort of personal gain and status. And these people gather around Jesus to listen to him. And this, if you know, if you know the story of Jesus, if you've read the Gospels, you know that this isn't the first time this has happened. Jesus tends to attract these kinds of people. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they, they mutter, they, they sort of gossip, they whisper behind his back, this man is welcoming sinners. He's welcoming the unsavory types. He's welcoming the people that you probably don't want to walk by on the street, the ones that make you a little nervous. He's welcoming them and he's eating with them. In that culture, in that time, and in many cultures today, even, even in these same parts of the world that this story takes place in, uh, in many of these cultures, to eat with someone is not just to share a meal. To eat with someone is to honor, respect, and accept them. It is to reach out a hand of fellowship and to, to receive them. And Jesus was, a, was, a, was somebody who would eat with the most unsavory unexpected people. All the time, you, you, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they catch Jesus eating with sinners, with people who are just screw-ups. They, they would find Jesus eating with tax collectors, the people who would compromise their faith, betrayed their fellow Jews for personal gain and status. They, they would even find him eating in the home of diseased people like Simon the leper, Jesus didn't seem to have any boundaries at his table. His table fellowship was with the most unsavory kinds of people, and it made people angry. See, I don't know if we realize how radical that is right off the bat. Jesus is after a different kind of person than we might think he is. So these tax collectors and sinners are around him listening, just hoping for a word from him. And the Pharisees and teachers of the law are looking on and judging and saying, why is he talking to them? He should be talking to us, who actually have it together, who actually care, who actually want to know God, who are seeking righteousness. See, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were people who desperately wanted righteousness. They sought it with every fiber of their being. They, the Pharisees were famous for their law keeping. They wanted to keep every little bit of the law. In fact, they not only wanted to keep the law as written in the Old Testament, God's law, they made up thousands of more laws to help them keep that law. They wanted to keep every single, they were law abiders. And they couldn't understand why Jesus wasn't hanging out with them, but was hanging out with all these unsavory types, these compromisers, and these sinners. So Jesus, you know, he knows all things. He's God in the flesh. He knows the thoughts of these Pharisees. There's been many times when they think certain thoughts and he calls them out on it. So Jesus knows what, what they're saying and what they're whispering behind his back. So he begins to tell a story. Verse three, then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? 
And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. So Jesus paints a picture of, of somebody who has a lot of sheep. And in, that, in those days, sheep were very valuable. Your livestock, right, was sort of your capital. It was, it was your, your wealth. It was how you, you supported yourself. You could even use livestock to buy certain things. And so, so these, these 99 or these 100 sheep are very valuable. And one of them does what sheep do and wanders off. And you would think that, that may, maybe uh, the, the shepherd would either just like take, take this 99 and sort of hunker down and say, okay, I'm not losing any more, right? But that sheep is valuable to him. So instead, he goes and he seeks it. And, and that, that, that also might surprise us. Sometimes we might think that, that he would go to the edge of the clearing and just, ooh-wee, where are you? Come back. What does it say? No, he goes after the lost sheep, until he finds it. He goes in search. He sends out a rescue party himself. And he leaves these 99. He knows they're safe in open country. He knows they're going to be safe right there. But there's no telling what trouble that other sheep has gotten into. There could be wolves. There could be bears. There could be lions. There could be anything. They could, it could have fallen and broken its leg or its back. This shepherd goes in search of this sheep. And notice this, Jesus says then in verse 7, and I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over, not, over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. He's talking about the joy of finding what is lost. Have you ever lost something? Maybe your keys. And then when you find them, isn't there a wave of relief? Oh, thank goodness. And maybe you don't call your neighbors and friends together. Maybe you do. That's cool. But maybe you just do a little happy dance in your car because you found your keys. Right? When you find something that was lost, if you lose your wallet and then you get it back and you get back in your car after getting it back and oh, oh, thank goodness, oh, wave of relief. Maybe it changes your whole attitude, your whole mood. He's talking about the joy of finding what was lost and he's saying, just like the sheep and the shepherd, when God finds a lost sinner and brings him home, there is a party, there is joy, there's an overflowing of relief and gratitude and cheering and celebrating happening in heaven, more so over that than over the 99 that did not need to repent. Now that seems strange. We're gonna talk about that celebration here in a little bit and why that is, that, that God would celebrate the lost one. But notice that it says um, that there's more, uh, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, I don't know what, what this word repent uh, means to you, what, uh, kind of what it triggers in your mind. Uh, some of us, when we think of repentance, you might picture an altar call with people up front kneeling and crying and, and, and having people pray over them. Or, or you might think of, um, it might get like fire and brimstone, like turn or burn, repent, right? That kind of feeling. Uh, the word repent in the Bible, as the Bible uses it, means just very simply to turn around, to be going in one direction and to turn around. And in a Christian sense, when, when Jesus uses this and he's talking about the gospel, it basically just means to turn to God. Whatever direction you're going, to turn to God. And so when he's talking about, to, uh, talking about repentance, he's talking about turning around from whatever direction or thing that you're trusting, whatever direction you're going, turning around, like, like, like me on, on the Camino, right? Talking about going the wrong way and then hearing the call to repentance and turning to follow. And uh, when, we, when, we talk about, when we talk about that, Jesus, actually, that's a, a, a central point for him. Remember in Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1 when Jesus begins his public ministry? What does he say? The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. He's basically just saying, turn around. And why does he want you to turn around? Well, imagine that shepherd. Imagine that shepherd going after that sheep and kind of running after it. And maybe he starts to see it in the distance, like across a field and heading into the forest. And he's running after that sheep. He wants to save that sheep. And he gets real close up to it. But if that sheep keeps walking away, he's not going to tackle it. He's going to wait for that sheep to turn around and see him. And then he can bring it back to the fold. See, God is out searching and seeking for what is lost. And all he's asking is for them to just turn around, 
Just turn from wherever they're going and turn towards him. He tells another parable that's pretty similar to this in verse 8. He says, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. So Jesus is now talking about something that was lost and maybe even didn't mean to get lost. You know, the sheep was being dumb. It wandered off. Right? It had a will of its own and it was going its own way. I want, this, this clearing's nice, there's good grass and it's pretty safe, but I wonder what's over there in the hills. Maybe I should try it. A little more willful. This, this time it's just, it's just a coin, right? Maybe, maybe some papers got put on top of it like happens in our homes and where did I put that down? I don't know where. Maybe it fell behind the counter or under the refrigerator and where did that go? Where did, where? Sometimes things get lost by accident. Sometimes people get lost by accident. They're going about their life in one circumstance or another, you know, something happened to them, or maybe a series of somethings happened to them. Maybe they tried to get engaged with God, but kept finding closed doors at church and in relationships, and suddenly they discovered, I'm actually quite lost. Sometimes things get lost on purpose, and sometimes things get lost on accident, but God responds the same way. This woman, right, she sweeps the house, she cleans every corner, she pulls away every piece of furniture, she's looking for the coin, and when she finds it, she's relieved, and she rejoices. Notice this, in both of these two parables, who is the one who takes action? It is the shepherd and the woman. See, when something is lost, God goes on a mission to find it. I don't know where you're at in your life. Maybe you've believed in Jesus before and you've gotten off course and you're just feeling a little bit lost. Maybe you've never believed in Jesus and you're waking up going, how did my life get here? I want you to know that wherever you are, God is out to find you. God is running after you and he runs faster than you do. Notice that in both cases, the woman and the shepherd, they search until they find what has been lost. God will not stop looking. He will not stop chasing. He will not stop calling. He is on a mission to find you. Notice that the coin doesn't take any action. The sheep doesn't take any action. Sometimes we we imagine this. Sometimes we imagine, oh, I feel lost. I've sort of lost my way. You know what? Once I start getting my life back together, I can finally go back to Jesus. Oh, I miss, I miss him. I want, I want to be just so intimate with the Lord, but you know, I, I, I got to get all this stuff put together first. Or sometimes we go, oh, I, I know I'm far from God, so I need to do X, Y, and Z to get back. I need to climb that mountain again. I need to get back to that clearing. I need to get back in his presence. God is not waiting for you to find your way back. You might be running hard and fast in the opposite direction. You know what? He's right behind you waiting for you to what? Repent. Turn around. If you turn around, he is right there. You may think you're building a wall between you and God with your choices and your stuff, and if you want to go back to God, then you have to tear down that wall piece by piece. The truth is he's on this side of the wall with you because he is searching and looking for you. And when he finds you, there is joy. In the same way, he says in verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who what? Turns around. Just turns around. Jesus is very clear about this in Luke chapter 9, or chapter 19, verse 10. He says, the son of man, that's Jesus' name for himself, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. You know what, my, my default in my theology as a Christian, uh, somebody, somebody who's a broken person and wants to think of things in my own way, my, my default would be to say, for the Son of Man came to save the lost. I think we'd all agree with that if we're Jesus followers, right? He saved us through his work on the cross and his resurrection. Do you ever think about this? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He's on a mission. He's looking. He's searching. He's coming after you. He's tracking you, and he runs faster than you do. Do you, un- do, you un- do you understand that Jesus seeking you means that he wants to bring you back home? Do you understand that Jesus seeking you means that he is extending that hand of fellowship just like he did when he ate with tax collectors and with sinners. He is extending that hand of fellowship and inviting you to return. 
See, the Son of Man didn't just come to save. He came to seek because he's on a mission, and he knew that we couldn't find our way back to him on our own. When, 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 when somebody actually is going in one direction and their life is, is sort of crumbling around them and they realize, I need Jesus, and they repent, do you know what it is in them that enables them to do that? This is, this is very clear in the scriptures. We just did a series earlier this summer on John, uh, 1 John, and in 1 John chapter 5, it tells us that no one can believe in Jesus unless the Holy Spirit enables them to do so. Nobody can repent unless the Holy Spirit is working in them to move them and turn them around towards Jesus. It's all him. It's all him. We spend so much time talking about, I need to choose Jesus. I need to work towards Jesus. I need to, I need to believe. I need, and that is all true. But you know that it's even more true that God is choosing you. You might be seeking and searching for the Lord. Did you know that he, it's more true that he is seeking and searching much harder for you? And if you believe in Jesus, it's not good for me. It's good for him. He has enabled me to turn away from all these other things I was pursuing, repent, and just turn to him. You guys, God has done it all. Can somebody say amen? God has done it all. He has done it all. We could never add to his work. We could never accomplish half of what he's done. He doesn't meet us halfway. He meets us all the way. Jesus is on a mission to seek and save what was lost. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what your life is like. But if you are feeling lost, Jesus is looking for you. He's ready for you to turn around. He's not waiting for the repentance that says, I'm going to get all my stuff together and then come. He just wants you. How many times have I sat with a high school student or a college student in my life of ministry and they're just like, oh, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to trust that God is my father. I want to live like that. But I just, I know that he's not going to like this or that in my life. And I'm not sure what to do about this or that relationship. And I want to believe in Jesus, but I just don't feel like I deserve it. I don't have everything to get. And I've, I've gotten the chance to explain to them over and over. Yes, all, all, we're not at that step yet. We're not there yet. We're not at the change your life yet. We'll get there. We'll get to change your life. Right now, all God is asking you to do is turn around. Turn around. He wants to seek. And he wants to save. Not me saving myself. He wants to do it. So to repent, Jesus is just asking us to turn to God. And then he tells another story, a little bit longer one. And this one is maybe the most famous parable Jesus ever says. It's the parable of the lost son. I would call it the parable of the lost sons, plural sons. Uh, some of you may have heard this spoken as the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal is like an older English word, right? It just, it just means recklessly extravagant or like spending money in a reckless way or resources in a reckless way. And so this prodigal son kind of does this. So let's look at this chapter, in, or this, this uh, story in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So the son goes to dad and says, I want my inheritance now. Now, we don't really live in an honor-shame society. In some ways, our society is going in that direction. But uh, we don't really live in an honor-shame society. But in this, in this time, in this place where Jesus is speaking, everything is about honor and shame, about reputation. And if you did the wrong thing, you would bring shame not only on yourself, but on your whole family. And it wouldn't have been unheard of. It was rare, but it wouldn't have been unheard of for a son to ask their father for an, an inheritance before the father was dead. And what, what that was communicating to the father was, I wish you were dead. All I want is the money. I don't need a relationship with you. I want my money. Give me my share of the inheritance. And th this would have just been shocking to his listeners. To hear that, that a son would say that to a father enormous shame on the son, but not just on the son, on the family, and not even just that, but probably on the whole village where the family lived, just total shaming. And so the father gives the son the money, and what does he do with it? Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country, and there he squandered all of his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. 
He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but there was no one to give him anything. So he goes away, he takes the money from his father, he basically steals from his father, cut off from the family, he runs to a different distant country, and he spends all this money on just satisfying his carnal desires. If I want to eat that, I'm going to buy it and eat it. If I want to drink that, I'm going to buy it and drink it. If I want that person, I'm going to buy them. He just spends all of his money and just feeds and just gorges, and then suddenly he realizes that he's out of money, and that country is actually out of food. So he's desperate, he becomes hungry, He literally gets in the pigsty, and he thinks these pigs have a better life than I do. I want to tell you that sin, any choice you make to turn you away from God, any choice that you make that that is not what he has in mind for you, sin will never show up and show itself to you in your in its true colors. It will never say, Hi, I'm here to ruin your life. Sin will always try to convince you that you you need to follow that way in order to have happiness. It'll say, I'm I'm here to make you happy. I'm here to make you satisfied. If you just listen to me and jump off that cliff and make that decision, you will be satisfied. You will finally feel happy. And all those desires you have, they'll finally be fulfilled. And, and, And you know what? That happiness will last forever. If sin were to show up and, and, and talk about what, what's really going on, it would say, I'm here to gorge you for about five minutes and then leave you hungry, alone, empty, starving, and thirsty forever. Sin is not your friend. Sin is not here for you to have a better existence. It is here to take you down, get you down in the pigsty with your sin so you can roll around in it. That's what it's after. And it accomplishes its work for this son, this son. God, God will allow us. If he loves us, he will allow us to exercise our free will and to grab what we want, to take it for ourselves. He will even allow us to get to the point where we are rolling around in the ditch with our own sin. If he loves us, he will let us get to that point. Why? Well, look at the next verse. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, when he came, he woke up. That's actually a really good phrase to describe what it means to repent, to come to your senses, to wake up as from a nightmare, to wake up and be like, how did I, how did I get here? If God loves you, he will allow you to get to that point. Why? Well, look at what the, the son says next. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. God, if he loves you, will allow you to get to the point where you are truly humble and ready for help. He will allow you to get to the point where you're ready to repent. Just turn around. You know, I'll bet this son had done everything he could in his wild life to not think of his father. When you're living in sin, I've experienced this. I don't know if you have, but when you're living in sin, everything in your day becomes about not thinking about God. It's all about just ignoring him. And when the son finally is down in the dirt, rolling around with the pigs in his sin and the muck and the mire, he finally wakes up as from a bad dream. And what's the first thought in his head? My father, my father, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to tell him how wrong I've been. I'm going to plead with him to take me back, not, not as a son, not as an heir, but as a servant. It would be better to be a slave in my father's house than to rule in this house of sin. It would be better to just be a total servant and never, never even be worthy to be called a son than to get whatever I want and be a rich, fat landowner in the house of sin. He wakes up. He comes to his senses. If God loves you, he will help. He will get you to the point where you wake up. That's from a bad dream and are ready just to turn. So verse 20, the first part of verse 20 says, so he got up and went to his father. This is the moment of repentance. You know, this son has practiced his apology, but has he apologized yet? No. 
Has he asked for forgiveness yet? No. That will all come, but this is the moment of repentance. Getting up from the mud and the muck and just turning to home. Just turning back to home. That is a picture of repentance. So he walks back home. And you know, this, this wouldn't be um, totally unheard of. There were lots of ways in this day and age to shame your parents, shame your family. And if you had brought shame on your family, you would be cut off just like this son was. You would no longer be considered part of the family. And if you wanted to come home, you, you could. But if you lived in a village, you had to walk through that village. And everybody in that village was uh, not only um, allowed, but expected to shame you as you walk past. Shame on you. How dare you do that to your parents? How dare you do that to all of us? You don't deserve to be here. They were expected to shame you, to punish you for everything that you had done to shame your family and your village. And then when you got to your father's house, you would have to crawl to the feet of your parents and beg for forgiveness. And if it was a good day and your parents happened to be especially gracious, they might receive you back, but you would no longer be a child. You would be a servant, you'd be a guest, and you would not have the same privileges as you had as a child. So this son knows what's waiting for him. He says, I'm going to get up and go to my father. Even if, even if they shame me, even if, if he doesn't accept me, I, I know that this is my best chance of survival. Second part of verse 20 says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Has the son apologized yet? No. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. What does that mean? It means he was looking for him. He wasn't just waiting in his room going, I hope that son of mine turns up. He wasn't trying to put the son out of his head. He was looking for him. This would be so surprising because to the people he's, who are listening to him, this son is now considered to be dead to that family. The father's not waiting for him to come back. The father has only one son now. Instead, he's looking, and as soon as his figure appears on the horizon, he is filled with compassion, and he runs. Let me tell you, in this culture, in this time, older men did not run. Little kids ran. There were two reasons for this. If you were an older man, it was expected that you had honor and respect, and everyone would wait on you and serve you. They would wait for you and wait on you. The other reason is, is if you're going to run, you have to hitch up your robes and run and show your bare legs, and that was also shameful. Old men did not run, but he runs. He, he, he shames himself to get to his son. He puts his arms around him, kisses him, and hear this, he shields him from the shame that was his due by right. The son deserved to be shamed, mocked, humiliated. And the father shields him from all of it by seeing him a long way off, running towards him, wrapping his arms around him, kissing him on the cheek, and welcoming him home. This is radical, radical stuff. And remember, the son still hasn't gotten any apologies out, but he's repented. I think the father knows when he sees him. Remember, it says he sees him a long way off and has compassion on him. I think when he sees him, he knows. This guy's gotten down in the dirt with his sin. He's rolled around and wished he was dead. He's starving. He's empty. He's humble. He's ready to come home. And the father doesn't make him jump through any hoops. The father doesn't make him make any specific word, worded apologies. The father runs to him and wraps his arm around him and says, I will shield you from this shame. Welcome home. Then the son tries his apology out. Verse 21, so the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I think he means that. He's saying, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve to be your son, but, and the father doesn't let him finish. Remember, he had already practiced his apology, and it was much longer than this. The father doesn't let him finish. Verse 22, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. So they began to party. The father throws a party. 
He's home. He was dead. He's alive. He was lost. He's found. The father begins to lavish gifts upon his son. Wait, wait, wait. wait. Hadn't the father already given him everything? Hadn't the father already said, okay, this is what you get. Nothing more. Use it wisely. And then the son did not use it wisely. And he got himself down in the dirt and totally starving to death. And the father's response is to lavish more upon him when he comes home. Doesn't the father know that that's not a wise investment? That's too risky. Let's do some cost-benefit analysis here. See, I would suggest, I would suggest that the son is reckless in his spending. I would suggest that the father is wildly more reckless. This son has come home. Here's a ro- best robe. Here's this ring. Put it on your finger. We're going to have a feast. We're going to celebrate lavishing gifts upon him. I ran into this verse this week, and it really struck me as a, a picture of what's going on here. This is Ephesians verse two, or chapter 2, verses th- 4 and 5. It says, but, but, right before this, Paul is talking about how we are all by nature objects of wrath because we're so messed up. And he says, but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich, who is wealthy in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God's got mercy, compassion, grace to spare. He's rich in mercy. And like the father, he lavishes it on the son who just comes home. He lavishes it upon him. And you know, that might seem like he's getting off pretty easy, right? Doesn't he have to grovel? He didn't even finish his apology. He didn't even ask for forgiveness yet. What's going on here? I think that the Father knows what God knows, which is when our heart is ready to turn and just ask for help, when our heart is ready to repent, and the love of the Father just meets us where we are and lavishes riches of mercy and grace upon us, I think God knows what the Father knows, which is that we will never be the same. This Son did not expect this welcome. This son thought he was going to have to just grovel barely to become a servant in his father's house. And instead, he's lavished. He's welcomed home. There's a celebration for him. This son is never going to be the same. His love for his father is going to make him more faithful than he ever thought he would be. His love for his father is going to make him work hard to please his father. See, when God lavishes his grace and mercy upon you, it changes you. Does God care about your behavior? Absolutely. But he knows that you can't get your behavior together on, his own, on your own. So as soon as you turn around, he's ready to lavish his love upon you and let that love get down inside your life and radically transform the person that you are. This son will never be the same. Can you imagine the audience listening to Jesus right now? The sinners who just gotten down in the dirt with their sin. The tax collectors who betrayed their faith and their fellow Jews for personal gain. I'll bet those sinners were saying, you know, that sounds familiar. There's a reason my parents won't talk to me. I'll bet, I'll, I'll bet those tax collectors say, you know, that sounds familiar. There's a reason I have to do shady things to make a living. And I'll bet the Pharisees are listening going, That's not what's supposed to happen. That's not what's supposed to happen. But I'll bet some of them inside, because their righteousness is external, but they do their sins behind closed doors. I'll bet some of them are going, could that be me too? And then Jesus continues the story. He doesn't stop there. In verse 28, he says, the older brother became angry. Oh, sorry, this is verse 25. Uh, Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard the music and dancing. He's like, oh, that's weird. My father's been kind of bummed out lately after we lost my younger brother. That's weird. Why would he be celebrating? What's going on? It's nobody's birthday. So he called one of his servants and asked him, what's going on? Verse 27, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The servant, is, the servant is just like, guess what? We're having a party. We haven't had a party in forever. The party is the coolest thing that happens all year long because we don't have the movies or any other kind of entertainment. This is going to be so much fun. So excited. And the, the, the older brother is a little less excited. He, it says this. 
in verse 28, but the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father, so his father just left him out there to brood and enjoyed the party. It's not what it says. So his father went out and pleaded with him. He did the same thing he did to the younger son. He went and he sought to save. Pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving away for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you gave me even a, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. What the older brother is saying is, listen, I deserve a party. He doesn't deserve a party. I want what I deserve. And the father is just pleading with him, pleading with him to come in and join the feast. Listen to his father's response in verse, 20, in verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. What he's saying is it doesn't matter what you deserve. It doesn't matter what he deserves. What matters is he was dead and he came back to life. He was lost and he is found. See, this is the thing about celebration. Jesus, after each of these parables, after each of these parables about the lost thing being found, Jesus talks about celebration. He talks about there being a huge celebration in heaven and a huge celebration in this father's house. And I think that they are not, listen to this carefully, they are not celebrating the one who was lost and is found. You know who they're celebrating? God, who is rich in mercy and lavishes grace and gifts of, of goodness and, and hope and peace and love upon every single one of us. This isn't a party for the son. This is a party for the father to celebrate everything he is that he could compassionately pour out upon his son who was lost and has been found. It's not about what we deserve because what the father is trying to say is this. You have everything you need. Yes, you've never wandered away from me. Yes, you've always been righteous, but you have everything you need. Why? Because I gave it to you. Because it's all about what I want to give. It's all about the giving, generous heart of God. These parables are not about us. They're about God. And when they celebrate, they're celebrating God's goodness, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, his reckless love that just lavishes upon us. And they're giving glory to him for that. I think this part of the parable is directed at the Pharisees. Jesus is saying, you know who's lost? All of us. Remember that first parable he told about the lost sheep? There's a famous passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, and in verse six, it talks about Jesus and it says, we all of us have gone astray like sheep, each to his own way. And it talks about how Jesus has come to seek and save us. We all of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each to his own way. If you don't think you need the mercy of God, then you don't get to join in the party where we thank God for all that he is. Do you know how many people in the world don't know what it feels like to sing praise to God just because he's so good to us? Just because he's so good. You know how many Christians in the world don't know what it's like to sing praise to God with total abandon just because he's so good to us. We're not celebrating ourselves. We're celebrating God. There's a verse in uh, Psalm chapter 51. Remember this one? Psalm chapter 51, King David wrote it. King David, an upstanding, righteous, holy, living guy, He's called a man after God's own heart, and then one day he commits murder because he wants to sleep with this man's wife, so he kills him, and then he commits adultery with this woman. And then he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, and he, he tears his clothes in agony, and he's in ashes, and he says, he, he repents, and he writes this psalm, Psalm 51, and it says this, the sacrifices of our God are a broken and contrite heart. What does God desire from you? A broken and a contrite heart. A heart that says, no, God, you're right. I am hopelessly lost. I'm awash in my sin. I'm totally down in the dirt and the muck with the pigs. Would you save me? That's what God desires is a heart that is humble and asking for help because he is ready to save. It's just who he is. 
It's just who he is. And when we accept that, when we live into that, when we turn around and we repent and we say, yes, save me, it radically transforms us. You know, this phrase of being lost and being found, maybe it sounds familiar to you. There's a famous song that we sing with those words in it, isn't there? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. You know that song? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. The man who wrote that song, you probably know this story. Uh, The man who wrote this song lived his life and earned his living by uh, capturing, enslaving other human beings and then selling them off to other human beings, uh, taking children and kidnapping them and tearing families apart, viciously beating the people he was entrapping. And you know what happened? God found him. He was lost and God found him. And his life becomes radically transformed. And John Newton, the guy who writes these words, he spends the rest of his life trying to stop people like him who want to participate in the slave trade. Trying to stop people like him because he's been radically transformed by the radical, giving, generous love of God. And he, he can't, and after he experiences that, he can't shut up about it. He won't stop talking about it. He writes song after song about how good God's grace is. In fact, on his deathbed, he's about to breathe his last. He says these words, although my memory is fading. He's old, he can't remember very much. I remember two things very clearly, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. Let this be your mantra for life. Every morning when you wake up, remember, don't forget, remember what a great sinner you are without the Lord. What a, how twisted your heart is without him. And then remember how great and generous he is. God's been saving people like this since the beginning. He always seeks to save He doesn't wait for us to get it together. He seeks us and comes all the way and gives us the chance just to turn to him. In Genesis, uh, when God creates the Garden of Eden and puts Adam and Eve in it and they eat the apple and they sin, what does God do? He comes to the garden and he says, what? Where are you? They're hiding because they're scared, they're ashamed. And he's saying, where are you? See, some people say, I've heard this a lot, maybe you've heard this too, that God is holy and his holiness means that he can't be in the presence of sin. I get that thought, I understand why we think that, I just haven't found it in the Bible anywhere yet. And I think that God's holiness, his, his holiness means that he is set apart. He is other than us, completely different from us on another plane. I think his holiness or his otherness is actually, it draws him to the sinner. It makes him come to seek out the sinner. I think he's actually chasing down and seeking out every single sinner in this room and in this world. God, because of just who he is, seeks and he saves. He comes after us. That's why Jesus came in the first place, right? To seek and to save. Not to wait for us to get back together and get to his temple and get to him, but to come find us in the midst of our sin and when we are dead to bring us back to life. The book of Exodus chapter 36 says this about God. This is God's own words about himself and it is repeated over and over and over in the scriptures. It says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. It is just who he is to see someone lost in their sin and to come after them, to welcome them home. It's just who he is. And I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know if, if you're just living your life with Jesus, feeling this, this intimate connection with him. Great, this word is for you. To remember that it's not just your sins that are a problem, the actions, it's the very sinfulness or twisted nature of your heart that's a problem. And without Christ, you are lost. And it's to remember what a great savior he is to come all the way to find you. If, you're, if you were or have been a Christian or maybe you still are a Christian, but you have lost your way If you are awash in your sin and you're not sure how to get back, I want you to know Jesus isn't waiting for you to get it all together. He wants to help you get it all together. Turn. Why not this morning? Why not this Sunday morning in July? Why not turn around? Why not repent and just come home? He wants to lavish his grace and mercy and compassion upon you. He'll help you get it all together later. 
How about just repent? I don't know, maybe, you walk, maybe you've never trusted in Christ. Maybe, maybe you just know that your life needs some help. Welcome. Jesus is offering you the hand of fellowship. Will you turn? Will you repent? Will you take it? Remember who Jesus is talking to here, Luke 15, 1 and 2. The tax collectors, those who had betrayed their faith, those who had walked away, the sinners, those who have just never gotten it all together, those who are just rolling around with their sin in the mire, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the righteous ones, the ones who look like they have it all. He's speaking to all of us. He's saying, I know how lost you are. I came to find you. Will you repent this morning? Will you turn? Will you take his hand that he's offering of fellowship? I'll let the Father welcome you home. In a minute, we're going to take communion. We have four stations around the room. This back one here is the gluten-free station. Jesus, on his last night with his disciples, after sharing this message with them through his life and his words, he says, you know, now I'm, now I'm about to make it real. I'm about to make it real. I'm going to break my body and shed my blood for you. And I want you to take this bread and this cup, and I want you to remember that this represents my body, which is broken on your behalf. My blood, which is poured out for the sins of the world. All, all the shame you deserve, I'm taking it. I'm taking it. All the condemnation you deserve for your lostness, it's on me. And as we come to the tables this morning, this is our feast of celebration. If we know the Lord and we've let him cover us with his blood and his body and his sacrifice, if we have turned to him and let him save and seek what was lost and we've been found, this is your celebration. This is your party that the Father is throwing for you. Celebrate before him and take it joyfully. You know, if you are wandering far from Christ, if you've never trusted in Christ, if you have but then wandered away and you're lost somewhere, this is your chance to turn. This is your opportunity to repent and believe the good news. Not the good advice, right? Jesus says, I come bearing good news, which is that I'm here to seek and to save. And as we take these elements, if you want to put your trust in Jesus for the first time, just come take the, the cup and the bread and say, Jesus, I'm trusting in your body, which was broken for me, and your blood, which was poured out for me. I'm trusting in your mercy. And let him just lavish his kindness upon you. I'll pray and then the tables will be open. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you that we don't have to get it together before you will receive us. Thank you that all we have to do is turn around and you'll come chasing us down, wrapping your arms around us, shielding us from the shame and welcoming us home. Lord, I ask today that as we celebrate that and as we put our trust in you, as we turn and let you find us, I ask that that mercy, that kindness, that compassion you have would just change us, would just get inside our lives and make us so in love with you that we want to follow you every step of our lives with every breath that we breathe. We love you so much, Jesus, and we thank you for welcoming us home. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.